All day today, I, I, I had in mind what I was going to talk about in this talk, but I, th I keep uh, anticipating a talk. I keep saying, well, I'll start here. And then I think, no, no, be good to start here. No, really, I have to start here. And uh, so I keep shuffling the pieces all around. And I actually love the process of creating a talk and thinking about it, because every time I do that, I get something in a new way. And I think to myself, wow. Now I really understand this. And I, I really, I find it um, uh, that both listening to a Dharma talk is a practice and giving one is a practice. Because I, I, I discovered something quite new today, I think. Probably is the many of time that I've discovered the same new. But, um, you know, I once, uh, one of my teachers, Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shlomi of Blessed Memory, said that we, everybody wants to know in, in, in terms of the wisdom of the sages. He said, and we go from knowing a little bit, because as we're growing up, we get a certain amount of wisdom about living in the world. And he said, we go from little K people to big K people, where we know with a big K, where we know with an unshakable faith that things are the way they are. So I love that one. I think, oh, now I really first am really getting this. So I want to talk about what it is that we're doing here in this curious practice, which I actually think is uh, um, the most comprehensive and incredible and radical way of talking about the practice of liberation of the mind. Uh, in a couple of minutes, we'll read the Metta Sutta together. And I love the idea that the entire wisdom of the path of practice, I think, is in that one page. When I travel to teach other places, I don't take other talks and I don't take books. And I take that one page of paper and I get to wherever it is I am and I have them make many duplicates of it. And then we study it one way or another for the time that I'm there. And I said last night, I think that, uh, or this morning, I said uh, uh, that one of the things that I uh, hope uh, will happen in my lifetime still is that people will begin to see that mindfulness practice and metta practice are really interwoven practices in each other. And to differentiate them and to make them separate really doesn't work. You can't, uh, you can't uh, develop uh, a heart that continues to relate with care and compassion and forgiveness to an inevitably troubling whole world without having enough mindfulness and enough wisdom to recognize that things are the way they are because they couldn't be any other way. So we need to have mindfulness and, in order to support the compassion that promotes goodwill. And we need to have the, uh, the, uh, the sweetness of compassion and of empathic joy and of general goodwill in order to warm our hearts if we're going to look at the world and our lives with clarity and not be embittered by it. We need to somehow sweeten our hearts so they can stand life. I just remember that when, when we were quite young, my husband and I, and just getting interested in spiritual practice, he is much more philosophical than uh, probably now as well than I am. 
And he would say, I really want to understand life. And I would say, not me, I just want to be able to stand it. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that still actually is pretty much the difference between us. I want to know the pragmatic answer for how will I, how will I feel better. Really, how will I feel better? Everybody wants to feel better. Everybody is here because they think they'll feel better at the end. You will, but it's a, it's a good guess. But everybody is here because they seriously want to feel better and be happier. Nobody comes to do this with their week of holiday unless they, they want that. This is a hard way to have a holiday. You could go to Hawaii or you could go someplace else. But I think really, if, if the more we begin to understand that the way to feeling good is through the purification of one's own heart, which I use that phrase particularly because this path of practice is called the purification of the heart. There was a peace activist named A.J. Musty that uh, uh, Donald and uh, his mother uh, were telling me about this afternoon, uh, who, to whom it is appropriate to uh, ascribe the, uh, the sentence, the teaching, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. What we are practicing here in every bit of the day, in everything that we do, in our keeping of the precepts, in our uh, uh, making wishes for uh, goodwill for everyone, in examining our hearts, in trying to overcome our uh, hesitations about opening our hearts to people, uh, the thought of whom arouses uh, tension in our minds. Every bit of what we do here, our being kind to each other and holding the doors, are being patient uh, on the back of a line for lunch, uh, being patient for washing the dishes, everything that we do, including, but not exclusively, what we do here on the pillow and walking around and walking practice or in the yoga movement practice, everything we do is designed to create peace in the mind and cultivate more peace in the mind and restore peace of mind when it's lost. That's really what we're doing here. I think about the time, this is such a bygone time, uh, uh, my family sometimes would go on a, uh, on a trip somewhere, uh, a motor car trip in the 1940s when people took trips from New York up into the Casco Mountains, for instance, and there'd be signs uh, entering Peekskill, New York, no disturbing the peace. So, I mean, you think about, it's, it's quaint, you know, it's absolutely unbelievable that a, a city would say no disturbing the peace, but suppose we said in our minds, no disturbing the peace. What we're doing here is we're trying to create peace and not disturb it. There was a movie called um, Monk with a Camera. Who saw that movie? Not so many. Uh, Nikki Freeland, uh, is a monk. He was born in uh, New York City to parents in the uh, upper levels of social classes. His grandmother was Diana Freeland, who was for many decades actually the editor-in-chief of 
Vogue magazine, and he grew up going to private schools and in the kind of elegant circles that those people moved. And as a young man, he uh, discovered a Dharma teacher, uh, a Tibetan teacher, with whom he fell in love and whose teachings he so admired. And he studied with him so diligently that he ultimately decided that he wanted to be a monk as well. And he became a monk in that teacher's tradition. And ultimately, and up to now, he uh, lives in India and uh, is the head of a monastery there in that same tradition. And the monk with a camera is the story of his life and uh, includes the monk with a camera as the fact that he was a very skilled photographer and the fact that he could uh, take beautiful images at some point in the story becomes important because he uh, has a, a, a photography exhibit that raises quite a lot of money which they needed in order to rebuild the monastery that they live in. So it, it has an important point. It also makes the point that because he, just because he's become a monk doesn't mean that he doesn't recognize at the same time his other capacities and talent and isn't able to use them on behalf of building a home for the Dharma. But the line in the movie that I most appreciated was the narrator of this documentary said to him at some point, what uh, practice do your monks do here? What do you do? What's your practice? And he said, we content ourselves. That's our practice. We content ourselves. And I found that very wonderful because we don't usually think of content ourselves. We don't think of content as a verb. We think of it as a condition, maybe. Uh, I, uh, maybe it's an adverb, I feel content. But we content ourselves, makes it an active uh, practice. Here, this is happening. What can I do to accommodate, I think it means. What can I do to meet the circumstances of my life, all of the circumstances of my life, my body and all its vicissitudes, I think about that. We, we, we have all these various levels around us. First of all, we have this that goes around for a whole life and the consciousness with it. So the body that goes through all its changes and has stomach aches and headaches and um, chills and hunger and fatigue and that we need to deal with and our relationships and the tensions in them that require attending and working with, and our family structures around us, and our communal structures, and just a little bit more pushing out the view in it, our world, and that all of these things are interlocking. I think so much about uh, that this practice uh, that we have undertaken, all of us, this practice of the personal transformation of this heart and mind is really all the time not just limited to this body and this story, but really inextricably linked with through this body with all the people that are connected to it and the stories that are connected to it and the people and the whole world through them, all the connections. This is, um, this is a poem written by Thich Nhat Hanh that I read today. It's in a collection of his poetry called 
peace in oneself and peace in the world. And I love this. This is part of a longer poem called A Prayer for Peace. May we have compassion for all of our suffering, for every land of tears, of blood and bones of young and old. May we have compassion for mothers who weep until their tears are dry, while sons on different distant fields decay, brothers killing brothers. May our hearts grow with deep understanding. I am determined, this is the particular part that I resonated so much to, I am determined to cultivate only thoughts that increase trust and love, to use my hands to perform only deeds that build community, to speak only words of harmony harmony and aid. May the merit of this prayer be transformed into peace in the world. May each of us realize our deep aspiration. I really liked that when I read, may the merit of this prayer be transformed into peace in the world. You know, it's a traditional um, Buddhist thing to tradition to finish a teaching or a sitting or a day of practice or uh, a a retreat by saying, may the merit that we have uh, developed through our practice and study together be offered as a, uh, a gift on behalf of all beings everywhere. And I often uh, think about changing the wording of that because it sounds like there would be an alternative. Like if I'm now saying, may the merit that I accumulated by doing this now be offered, it sounds like there would be the possibility of saying, well, I have all this merit, but I'm not offering it. <laughs> you know, that, uh, there was a... There was a uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was a cartoon in this month's New Yorker, this week's New Yorker, where it clearly two 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 men are walking in a woods, and they are clearly uh, Robin Hood and Little John from their outfits, and and one of them is saying to the other one, "How about instead we sell drugs to the rich and keep the money for ourselves?" <laughs> and the reason that that's so funny is because that's so completely ludicrous. That's so completely opposite to the what you think it's going to be, Robin Hood and Little John, and we'll steal from the rich and give to the poor, and the impulse that, comes, that goes along with that, that you want to take care of people. How about we'll sell drugs to the rich and keep the money for ourselves? <laughs> and I, you know, every time I looked at it, it tickled me. I didn't think I'd use it in here, but it clearly made a mark in my mind, and it's in there. But uh, the, the idea of merit, uh, I like the idea of merit, not merit that you accumulate and then at some point decide I'm giving it away, that the merit is simultaneous, the merit and the sharing of it is simultaneous with the making of it, that every act of awakened attention is a meritorious act. It's amazing to think about that because then... As we go through the day here, every moment when we are awake, 
is a moment in which our own hearts and minds are clarified and pay attention. The moments where people said in the interviews today, they said, you know, paradoxically, I'd like to be happy, but all of a sudden I have an annoyed feeling. But it's really a wonderful thing to say, you know what? It's fantastic that you noticed you had an annoyed feeling in the place of what you hoped was going to be a not annoyed feeling. But all of that carries the intention to be able to transform feelings. And all of it carries the wisdom of knowing that feelings are transient. They're actually empty. It's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. And say, an ignoble thought is arising in me. Wow, that's interesting, but okay, things arise. Now, may I feel easy? May I feel comfortable? May I be at ease? You know, one of the things that was part of my own uh, training in learning metta is uh, my, my friend, my colleague, my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, uh, invited me to come to Barry and study metta with her in 1985, she had just come back from uh, uh, some period of time in Burma studying metta with uh, Upandita. And she said, well, there's a mindfulness retreat happening, but why don't you sit in that retreat and I'll see you every day and I'll give you instructions in loving kindness practice. And I really didn't know very much about it at the time. I want to make sure that I didn't forget the end of the sentence before. Wait, wait, wait. What was I just saying? Uh, Meritorious. Oh, her her way in practice, her way is she met me every day. And when I left, and I had my hand on the door ready to go out, she'd say, instead of saying goodbye or I'll see you tomorrow, she'd say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. I thought, well, you know, that's a quaint salutation. You know, that, and, and uh, in California we say have a good day or something like that. But it was uh, some while later that I realized that that was an instruction. And it's also a wisdom transmission because it's also in the instruction is the message that you could be. And the way I knew that is I would go about my day after that and I'd be sitting and walking and sitting and walking and all of a sudden, I'm somewhere walking, and perhaps this truly, I'm not surely, but pretty surely, how, how many times has it happened in the day where you're really very present, walking, present, present, looking around, admiring, feeling, oh, my mind is really light, I feel easy, I feel happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. And all of a sudden, something happens. Someone goes by, for instance, and they look just like your ex-sister-in-law. And you think, oh, that looks like my ex-sister-in-law. I'll never get over that she did that to me, and she said that to me. And I should really someday write her a letter and tell her about that. And here was your mind in the best shape, and it suddenly gets hijacked by some completely transient, um, opportunistic thought. And, uh, and, and it begins to uh, hatch in your mind as a plan. And your mind gets more and more co- uncomfortable. But it can go along for Anybody, this happens to them? Okay, okay. So there's the moment, it's happening, happening, happening. 
And then all of a sudden there's a moment where the mind says, what am I doing? I'm not here. But at that point, because Sharon had given me that instruction, remember, be happy, I'd be walking around, my mind would, my attention would get hijacked by whatever it got hijacked by. And all of a sudden I'd think, I'm not happy. Because I'd hear Sharon's voice come in and say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. They, ah, I'm not happy. And then in that moment, all you have to do, because mind drops the thought, is put your foot down exactly where you're putting it down and feel it and put your other foot down and put this foot down and either put your foot down or say, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering or take a breath and feel your breath. All you need to do is take the next moment full of the energy of waking up in that moment and devote it to what's happening right then and the next moment and the next and all of a sudden, Happiness arises and the mind settles down. All of those, all of those um, moods and bypaths and long stories that seem to captivate the mind before you know it's happening are all made out of air and neuronal squiggles. There's nothing there. It's just a story. And as soon as the mind lets go of writing it, they disappear. They're not there anymore. And the cause of them disappearing is the bell that rings in your mind. It could be a mindfulness bell in a meditation hall, and it could be the voice of your teacher coming in your mind and saying, remember, Sylvia, be happy, which comes at moments when you're not happy. It's the indicator of that. So merit is always, every moment of attention is a meritorious action. I wanted to say that sometime. Oh, here, here was the note I made for myself. I think Sharon said, remember, Sylvia, be happy. She could have said, remember, Sylvia, quiet the storm of competing stories, all of which are creating you problems. But she didn't have to say that. She just had to say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. That's an option. It doesn't mean be pleased. That was another very major liberation, to notice that happiness didn't mean pleased in the way that we all, oh, you know, this is happening. It's just what I wanted. But happiness is saying, this is happening, and I can manage it. Especially, it's not what I wanted. But it's okay. I can manage it. Life is a doable thing. It's got lots of things in it that aren't okay, that aren't what we wanted. But it's manageable life. The things that happen to us our life. So I wanted to go back a little bit to Heather saying this morning that um, she's been thinking a lot about His Holiness and uh, uh, using Him as a, 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 a source of inspiration, as many of us do. Uh, so I, it came to my mind, came through, through my mind, uh, a story about a few years ago. I went to Washington, D.C. because um, the Dalai Lama was doing a week-long, um, a week-long workshop, a week-long presentation uh, on um, 
Kalachakra initiation. And at the end of um, the week, everybody felt really exalted by it. And there's just something about being in his presence. So I came home and Sally said to me the next time I saw her, she said, um, uh, many of you know Sally Armstrong was one of my colleagues here, said to me, so Sylvia, how was Washington? I said, it was great. She said, uh, did His Holiness say anything new? <laughs> so I thought about it and I said, you know, actually no, you know. The, the, he did the Kali Chakra initiation, that's not new, that's old. Um, and uh, he taught, well, you know, the wisdom of the Buddha. That's 2,500 years old. That's not new. <laughs> so on the one hand, he didn't say anything new. He, uh, he did say in one way or another that the cause of suffering is always ignorance and that the uh, ignorance about the truth of life experience, about how the mind, blinded by ignorance trapped by habits that continue to keep it mired in suffering, that it's workable, that there is a path to the end of suffering, that liberation from wisdom is a possibility, that it happens through seeing clearly. It happens through seeing clearly that the marks of experience are that everything is transient, that everything is interconnected and happening because of everything and causing everything. And that clinging in the mind, actually a better word for that is imperative in the mind, that things be different from how they are at any time, is suffering. Because things can't be different from how they are at any time. They could change. So it's, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that there is no such thing as human agency. There is definitely human agency. Human agency is what both has created problems in the world, but I hope will also solve problems in the world. But what is happening in any moment is the only thing that could happen in that moment as the fruit of all of the karmic causes forever and ever which is a really uh, wonderful thing to, um, to have as, a, as an interior reference point because it ends having good guys and bad guys and uh, victims and villains. We are all inextricably linked in a world that's at this point just like this, but could be different. So His Holiness didn't say anything new, I said to her. But then when I reflected back, I've told that story a few times since then, and I thought, you know, actually His Holiness did say something new. That, that's, I had three things to tell you about. One of them was that His Holiness didn't say anything new, and the other was His Holiness did say something new. He said something that he's been saying in recent years. He said, What's, it's not important to me what a person's religion is. He said, it's not important to me even if he, has, he or she has a religion or whether they're a Buddhist or not a Buddhist. He said, uh, what's important to me is if a person is ethical. What's really important to me is that a person is ethical. That's what interests me about people. And I really like that very much because... Uh, 
it fits so much with my understanding of the dedication of ethics being actually a heart practice and a wisdom practice that last night we recited precepts together that are injunctions to uh, abstain from causing harm in five different ways or four different ways and the fifth being a dedication to keeping the mind clear so that all those dedications can happen. But I think in general, the larger dedication of the whole idea of precepts is taking upon oneself the dedication to keep the world afloat, to keep our planet going, to keep our community going, to keep our family going, not to create a problem, not to be held hostage by impulses for lust and impulses for, uh, uh, for anger or violence, to be, able to be able to recognize them because they arise in people, but to be able to say, I felt like this, but I'm not saying it, I'm not acting on it. I think about this poem from Thich Nhat Hanh where he said, I am determined to cultivate only thoughts that increase trust and love to use my hands to perform only deeds that build community, to speak only words of harmony and aid. May the merit of this prayer be transformed into peace in the world, and may each of us realize this, our deep aspiration. This might be a good time to read the Metta Sutta together. Everybody picked up a copy of it on their way in. I really, uh, I really uh, enjoy looking in, at, in my own life uh, to how I have come around completely from a kind of um, complete misunderstanding of this sutta to the place where I am now, where I think it represents the whole of the Dharma laid out. When I first read it 30 years ago, I had a kind of a superficial... um, evaluation of it, it clearly says, as we'll read it together, that it calls for the radical uh, ability to wish well for all beings, no matter what. And uh, I appreciated in myself that for most of us, that seems like a, an impossible kind of task. And I, I guess because it, I, I didn't have enough vision to see this, Uh, I thought to myself, well, that's all very good. It uh, says, just do it. Just do it. Uh, And I thought, uh, this is just like the Nike ad. It says, just do it. But it doesn't say how to do it. And that was completely 100% wrong. Every line of this says how to do it. And it says all the three aspects of training that comprise the Buddha Dharma. When you get a book on Buddhism... It will say the path of the Buddha is the path of developing, uh, development of morality, 
the development of the mind and the development of wisdom. And this particular sutta is all three. And um, I even thought about today that uh, as many times as I've read this and taught about it, uh, when I started tonight, I started with peace is the path. And the first line of this is this is is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. It's all about cultivating that steadfastness of heart that's able to see clearly and get it, that our life experience is shot through with suffering and loss and disappointment because everything's always changing in the best of lives. We age and get sick and lose people who are dear to us and dreams that we hope for that won't come through. And to come from the beginning of it to the end and not be embittered by life and continue to love it and to continue to want to be engaged in it until the very end is formidable. There are so many opportunities to literally lose heart and how to be alive until the end of our life through the practice of being engaged in wholehearted wishing for the well-being of all beings. And there are three parts of it as we read it. I think we'll just read it through, but... No, maybe I'll stop as when we... As we go along, I'll say stop, and then we'll pick it up. Okay, here we go. This... You read it with me. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Stop. (laughs) I think all of that is the ethics training. The last line of it, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I think that's such a dear way to say that. That gives you no wiggle room. Let them not do the slightest thing that the, that the wise would later reprove. And I think that the hidden thing in it is not that I might do some um, uncool thing and some wise person will come out and say, nya, 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 I caught you doing a not wise thing. It's not about that. It sounds a little bit not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I think... The wise who later reprove is our own good heart. That's what I think. My experience in contemplative practice has been, over the years, consistently, whenever I sit down or go for a walk in the woods or do something that's quiet and contemplative and gives my mind and heart a chance to pick up, catch up with themselves, it starts immediately with a spontaneous moral inventory. And it doesn't need to be egregious things. Doesn't it happen for you that you sit down and you think, 
I forgot to call back Tom. I said I'd call back yesterday and I didn't do it. Or I forgot to call my mother. Or I wish I had remembered to stop by and visit so-and-so. Or something more. All of a sudden, something really significantly big that you'd done either the day before or 20 years ago that suddenly comes in your mind. Does that happen for you? I always take a little notebook with me on, on retreats that I keep under the Zabutan in the here. Because if I sit in the hall, I think of something, and I think, I can't fix it now. I can't call or do something. But that I don't want to keep rehearsing it and reciting it. So I take out my little notebook and I write down, call someone. So I go home with a little book full of things to do. I feel better immediately once I write it down in the little book because it's as good as done at that point. So seriously, it is. You, you know, I, I tell myself, you'll do this when you get home, and I will, and I feel better. It is our own wisdom that comes up and realizes that it's not a good idea to really do some... Um, Ignoble. I said before you could have an ignoble thought, but if you do something that's not cool, years can go by and it comes back. For most people, it does. We don't feel good about it. And I love the fact that I, I take a lot of courage from the fact that it consistently is my experience and my friend's experience that that moral inventory is self-generating, that uh, I don't even have to think and now... May I reflect on what I've done that's uncool or ignoble? If I just sit down and my mind gets quiet, it's, a, it's as if my mind heart says, I notice you have a little time up there. So you have a little free, empty space. I'm now going to remind you of you did this and you did that. And I feel better when I'm reminded. And I take a lot of comfort from it because I think that fundamentally people are good. And fundamentally... We take pleasure in doing, well, good things. We take pleasure in doing uh, kind things. There's mindfulness research these days that, that seems to prove that people who behave altruistically, who volunteer, who take care of other people, people who have altruism as part of their nature or part of their practice are happier than people who don't have that. They also, in, in many cases, live longer, apparently. Their health stays better because they feel valuable. They're involved in a life where they're doing something. They're keeping other people company. They're doing something about it. It doesn't matter the, what scale they're doing. But the fact is that their lives are not insular. They're connected to other people. And it's the connections that keep us afloat, really. not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. So that's, maybe we'll come back and later in the week and talk about more of those lines. I think every line is fantastic. Um, wishing, here we go, together, one, two, three. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, 
May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Wait, stop, stop. This is not the end of that training, but wish harm upon another. You know, that would be amazing to have a mind that never wished any harm on another. It would mean that we had somehow figured out that sometimes anger arises, but there's that, uh, but there that there are ways to address the concerns that cause the anger to arise without wishing harm upon the other. The, uh, in um, just to recognize the Dalai Lama one more time, somebody asked him one time at a conference that I was at. They said, "Do you ever get angry?" And he said, of course. Then he did, ha, the Dalai Lama has this little laugh. Ha, it's a very funny little laugh. Everybody recognizes it. He said, of course. <laughs> and then he waited just for a moment. And then he said, things happen. It's not what you wanted. Anger arises. And he waited a little bit. And he said, but it doesn't have to be a problem. <laughs> and at, I heard that. In a talk that he gave, that has to be in 1989, because it was in the evening before he got the Nobel Prize. And it's in my mind exactly, I can hear him doing it. Anger, some things happen, it's not what you wanted to have happen. Anger arises, doesn't that happen with you? It doesn't have to be a problem. That's the big revelation. So anger arises, okay, what should I do now? And I love that, that's really... And to think, what if my mind never wished harm upon another? I'd have a great feeling mind, wouldn't it? When you think about the mind that's thinking, mm, I'll fix him, I'll get her. The mind that's, that's hatching a revenge does not feel good. All that business about vengeance is sweet. No, it isn't. It's unpleasant. <laughs> Let's do the next line because it's great. Um, Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. Stop. That whole middle part is the, what I had so blithely said, there's no instructions here. Every line is an instruction. Anybody, every single person, every being, omitting none. Omitting none is radical, really radical. To think that there is nobody in my heart that I have not forgiven. I once told a friend of mine that there was one person in my heart that I hadn't forgiven. And I told her why and whole long story, and which I thought she would be very impressed with. And then in the end, she said, "You know, if you have uh, one person uh, standing in the way 
of your completely loving all beings, don't you think you could get over it? <laughs> and when you think about it, since all of those beings, including all those beings, don't know what's going on in my mind, the only mind that's being troubled by it is mine. That person, along with all the other seven and a half, eight billion people in the world, going around minding their business. And my mind is befouled with that particular, I'm not going to forgive. Why not? It is my mind that is really tied in a knot and held hostage unless I let it go. It really means it, omitting none. And the, uh, the phrase that I really, really think is so key is the beginning of that training part where it says, um, wishing in gladness and in safety. I think the gladness and the safety is what is necessary in order to wish that. If I'm frightened and if I don't feel safe and not happy, not content, I'll not be able to wish well towards all beings. It's the ultimate generosity to wish well for all beings. First of all, wishing well is limitless. It's not like I'm diminishing any stores by wishing well. I'm enhancing my own inner landscape by wishing well. If I wished well to everybody in the whole world, I would have no enemies. And my mind would be a completely, a completely peaceful neighborhood. I wouldn't be afraid of anybody. I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I think to be able to go around, walk through life, Unafraid would be impo- impossibly great to beat. That's really what we want. To not be afraid. Then the mind will relax and, and be peaceful. I also love that it says standing, walking, seating, or lying down. Uh, because if you think about it, that they're the only four postures that we're ever in. I mean, unless you want to say kneeling or leaning or something. But um, standing, walking, seated, or lying down are all the postures that we're ever in. And it's just such a nice way to say every moment, nothing but well-wishing. Every, you know, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, in every position, nothing but the mind filled with goodwill, I'm trying to think. Uh, there was a, a a woman whose name was uh, Deepa Ma. She was the teacher of uh, several of my teachers, and uh, she was uh, a, a, among her skills. She was an amazingly profound meditator, but she had a tremendous um, steadiness about her. I did meet her in person. She came from uh, Calcutta one time. My, my teachers brought her, and she was like teacher on tour in the United States, like rock band on tour. And people came to visit her. And she lived in my house for a week, which was one of the more extraordinary weeks in my life. And she had uh, such an incredible tranquility about her. It was just nice to be in a room with her. Like, not, agitation did not come out of her. Uh, and she certainly, she answered questions, and we had people come over and sit in my living room and ask questions, and uh, she had an interpreter, but 
the main thing that I got from her was not one of her answers to her questions, but this lovely tranquility that came out of her. You felt good in a room with her. And she said at one point, someone said, what's in your mind? And she said, well, the only thing that's ever in my mind, and I'm not sure of the third one. Do you remember the three? What are the three? Uh, was it, um, Equanimity. Uh, no, it was, I think, concentration, was it peace and metta? It yeah, it was concentration and loving kindness mm -hmm. and peace. Peace, yeah. peace. But you could feel the peace, you know, it was really... One should sustain this recollection. This last part is the wisdom part. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Really, that peace is possible in this very life. That's usually the way the third noble truth is translated. Life is, uh, life is uh, uncomfortable because it's always, life presents us with uncomfortable challenges always because it's always changing. Uh, suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are because they can't be. And the third noble truth is peace is possible in this very life. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, I always think that means a fixed view is it should be this way because I want it to be that way, but it's this way. can't be that way. By not holding to fixed views, a pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision. I like to translate the next line as being freed from the imperative of sense desires. Because as long as we're alive, we feel hungry and sleepy and we have sense desires. But uh, the imperative of sense desires is not born again into this world, which is, uh, for me, one way of interpreting that last line is, um, I am born again into suffering every time my mind gets stuck in a story and my mind is not able to uh, accommodate what the truth of its experience is. My mind says, shouldn't be like this. It is like this, whatever it is. To be able to live one's life that way, that's what I want to be able to do. This is what's happening. And it has nothing to do with quiescence and it has nothing to do with passivity or not responding. It has everything to do with responding with love. I think it's Merton who said, uh, his view of how things are, is that everything is actually suffering and everything is actually compassion. That compassion is the antidote to recognizing that this life is a continual attempt to accommodate and uh, we accommodate by bringing love to the situation, ourselves or other people. This is life and we're doing it. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. The capacity to respond with impartial goodwill 
understanding that suffering is not the circumstances of life, but the mind that meets the circumstances of life. And that peace is possible. When you realize that, it's really a great... When I realize that, it really um, makes me kinder to myself and everybody else because we're doing the best we can, all of us. And it's very touching that we're all always doing the best we can. So may the merit of all of our being here and practicing. Be understood to be on behalf of ourselves and our kin and our community and the whole world. May all beings have gladness and safety. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.